Good morning. I think most of you probably know me. My name's Dave Strozeski, or Stroz for short. It's easier for both of us. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Church, and uh, hi there. And um, and uh, just so appreciate the opportunity that we periodically have to come in and share God's word. It's a great privilege and responsibility. I'm really thankful for it this morning. And what I want to talk about is a message on forgiveness. It's something that's uh, been on our heart, my, on my heart for quite a while. In fact, a couple weeks ago, Pastor Mike in Acts 13 started to talk on forgiveness, and I thought, stop! You know, he, unfortunately, he kind of went a different direction, so I didn't have to feel bad about praying that he would stop talking about forgiveness. But actually, I wanted to talk about it because it's probably an issue that some of you are dealing with right now either not feeling forgiven or recognizing that there's forgiveness that needs to be asked for, that there's a relationship that's been damaged, and that you may have the power to do something about it. Kath and I experienced real issues with forgiveness. Neither of our parents were believers, and we dealt with issues regarding forgiveness and still had some straggling repercussions from that that continue to be dealt with. This is an ongoing thing that we need to handle well. And so it's been on my heart because I'm sure that some of you are struggling with those things now and it impacts every relationship in our life. First of all, obviously the Lord, whether or not we've been forgiven by Him, first and foremost, reconciliation and forgiveness is vertical. From that flows the horizontal relationship that we have with one another. If you would stand with me and pray after we read our passage in Colossians 1. We're going to back up to verse 3 to get a little context and then read through verse 22. If you're able to, thank you. This is God's Word. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world Also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things are being created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body of the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything." 
For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Let's pray. Dear Father, we're so thankful for your word. We know that it's by your word that we've been born again. It's by your word that you have revealed promises that continue to transform us to the likeness of Christ. We pray that that would be accomplished this morning by your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would do this all for your name's sake, for your glory, for our good, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We're we're going to use Colossians as kind of a jumping off point, and while it may not be homolytically correct, I'm going to start at those latter verses and then work my way back out. And I know this is akin to starting to dig a hole at the bottom, but since it's a message on forgiveness, I'm sure you'll give me a pass. I do want to give some groundwork, though, using a different passage. I want to look at Matthew 18. You don't have to turn there. You're welcome to. It's going to be familiar verses to you. But Matthew 18 outlines some issues regarding forgiveness that the Lord Jesus has given us, and it gives us a sense of weight to the matter of forgiveness. And I, th- I think because we often glibly, at least I do, take issues of forgiveness and our relationships, I think this parable and this discussion that Jesus is having allows some weight to set on us, and I think it's a positive thing. So let me look at that First, in Matthew 18, we know that there's the verses that Jesus talks about church discipline. At least that's how we refer to it, referring to a brother who has sinned. And you go to that brother, and if you've won him over, then everything is made right, no problem. We know that it progresses, and that if he doesn't hear you, you take a couple other people, and then finally take it to the church, etc. And so Jesus spends a lot of time talking about the need for reconciliation. This is quite a process just for the sake of winning someone back and reestablishing a relationship that Jesus is describing here. And then Peter, thinking himself magnanimous, we know, says, Lord, should I do this seven times? And he got that because the Pharisees and the rulers of the day said three times was the number based on the book of Amos. You'll forgive somebody three times. After that, bets are off. So Peter says, how about seven times? And Jesus says, well, how about 70 plus 7, or depending on how the Greek is, uh, is, is uh, translated, maybe 70 times 7. And the issue is Jesus isn't trying to give Peter a math lesson here. He's trying to give him a theological principle of the absolute importance of forgiveness in first our relationship with the Lord and in our daily walk. After that, though, what I find a little disturbing is the parable that Jesus gives on the hills of his discussion with Peter. To further elucidate his point to Peter about you continue to forgive, not past 490. It wasn't like 489, one more time, and this guy's done. It was forever that Jesus was describing this time period in which to forgive. And so he gives us a parable about a certain king, you remember, who calls his servants to account. And as he brings them to account, he finds one who owes him 10,000 talents which is the largest number of the day in the Greek, 10,000. It's the number that you use at home when you describe something that's 
infinite. You know, we, we went there a bazillion times or whatever number your family uses. That's the number here, meaning literally if it was 10,000, millions of dollars, maybe closing in on billion of dollars. And we know the servant begged for forgiveness. He didn't have the means to repay, begged for forgiveness. The king granted him forgiveness and they went on their way. We know then that that slave, the wicked slave, as he quickly became known, went to another servant and called him to account, and he owed a much, much, much smaller amount, probably a couple of months' wages, and wanted to exact payment from him. And that slave, we know, also begged for forgiveness in the exact same way and treated him to let him off the hook, and he grabbed him by the throat choked him and said, no, you will pay every dime you owe. You're going to prison until you repay the debt. We understand after that that the servants who saw that, witnessed that, were dismayed, full of grief. They were deeply disturbed. Went to the king, recounted the story, and the king then said, you wicked slave, I had forgiven you everything. Couldn't you have forgiven this much smaller amount? And he sent them to the tortures to repay what he owed. There's a lot of discussion on whether that's a believer or an unbeliever. Those who say that's a believer say that, well, he was, he was called his servant. He refers to him as his Lord, and he had actually forgiven him the debt, and so obviously it's a believer, and that being sent to the torture is just the most strictly meted out punishment in the New Testament akin to Paul turning one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Or there's those who say, well, he's obviously a non-believer because he had no idea, didn't recognize one whit the amount of forgiveness that he had received, couldn't have been a believer, and that's why he was unable to forgive this other slave, and he sent to the tortures, which is obviously a description of hell. Well, Jesus tells us kind of the point. I think that is not the point, whether that's a believer or non-believer, though there may be some ramifications, but the point of the story is are Jesus' words at the very end of that, and it's one sentence where he says, so my father, after this man is sent to the tortures, he said, so my father will also do to you to, if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. So shall my heavenly father also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. I think the point that Jesus is making here is, remember, he's been describing, recounting the strictness of the law to the Pharisees and to everyone who would listen to him, describing to them that if you're going to make it to heaven by keeping the law, you have to do it not only in your activities and your deeds, but by every motivation and intention of your heart. Remember, Jesus continued to say, you've heard it said that you shouldn't divorce your wife. I say if you divorce her, you've caused her to commit adultery. If you are angry with your brother, you're in danger of hellfire. To the rich young ruler, he said, you've got to get rid of everything you own. Jesus' point was that in all these cases, it wasn't just keeping the law strictly by its words. It was, are the motivations and intentions such that you can keep the law constantly, day by day, because that's the only way you're going to make it into heaven. Because we know that the language of forgiveness changes in the New Testament from this 
comment that social or heavenly father do if you don't forgive your brother from your heart? The disciples' prayer says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those, sounding conditional. We know that the language for forgiveness changes in the New Testament to, since you have been forgiven in Christ, likewise forgive. Forgive one another as you've been forgiven in Christ. The language language changes, but the weightiness and the severity do not. Because while the one was trying to keep the law to attain forgiveness, now we have forgiveness in Christ, which cost the Savior's blood, which caused the payment for sin, which caused his absorption of the wrath of God on the cross. And so the weight is still there. And that's what I want us to see is the weight of this forgiveness. Because we know that James tells us if you stumble in one point of the law, you're guilty of all. But soon Jesus was going to provide a path of forgiveness through the cross. We remember that Galatians 3.24 says that the law was a tutor to bring us to Christ. The goal was that we would see the law and finally recognize that this is not attainable. It can't be done. And Jesus, the master teacher, is giving the final lessons here saying, not only do you have to adhere to it strictly, but by every motivation and intention, you have to adhere to the law or I'm offering myself for forgiveness of sins for mankind, to pay the penalty of sin, to absorb the wrath of God and fulfill the requirement of the law in you. My new favorite verse is Romans 8, 3, and 4. I've just... uh, Love these verses. It says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was in the flesh, God did. For what the for the the weakness of the law, for what the law could not do, weak as it was in the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. We don't have to attain to the law, but there's a weight of the forgiveness that's been granted through Christ that is very serious indeed. Simon Wiesenthal has the, there's a Simon Wiesenthal Center here in Los Angeles, and he was a Nazi war criminal hunter and also spent time in a Nazi concentration camp. And he was on garbage detail one time, and a nurse came running out and wanted him to come into the hospital, that he was, it was requested that he come in. So he follows her in, and there on the bed, bandaged, bloody, pussing, oozing, was an SS Nazi guard by the name of Carl. And apparently he was ready to die, he was about to die, and he realized he had done just horrible atrocities and committed horrific deeds, and asked the nurse, could you please find a Jew that I could ask them for forgiveness? And so Wiesenthal comes in, and he grabs Wiesenthal by the hand and recounts all these horrible things that he had done. And he said, but please, I can't die without having been forgiven. Will you please forgive me, you being a Jew? And Wiesenthal pauses and looks out the window and finally walks out of the room, not forgiving him. And in that book, he asked the question, he said, what would you have done? And so because of that question, I'd like to ask us a question. Is there anyone in your life that you know you need to forgive? And is there anyone that perhaps you need to ask forgiveness of? Is there a relationship that you're harboring issues 
harboring resentment that you need to make right. I would ask you to consider that as we go through and look at these verses as a challenge to what the Lord would have you to do. We're going to look at five areas in the, in the book of Colossians, as I mentioned, that are the, uh, are the essence of forgiveness. And I'm not going to keep you in suspense. The essence of forgiveness is reconciliation. That's what forgiveness means. That's the goal of forgiveness. That was the goal of the Matthew 18 passage, going to the brother, is to reconcile. It was to make things right, to bring peace, to reestablish a relationship. That's what the goal was. And so what I want to look at is these five truths of the essence of forgiveness that is reconciliation. The first one is in God's nature. If you look at Colossians 1, 15 to 22, we see that it was in, um, in Christ himself that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, both in the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And it goes down recounting how he is all things, he's done all things, all things were for him. This is deity, this is God, this is Jesus and it says it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself. The essence of forgiveness is rooted in God's very nature. I was listening to a sermon recently, and it was MacArthur, and he commented that it was a different subject, but he was talking about the Trinity, saying that by nature the Trinity, the Godhead, had to be Trinitarian. Because if God's nature is love, if the essence of God is love, if God is love, by definition from eternity past, there had to be someone for whom the Godhead could demonstrate love, could receive love, could reciprocate love. And so I think that's one of the strongest de- uh, uh, arguments for a Trinitarian God is this idea that by necessity there had to be an opportunity to share love. Part of God's nature <clears throat> is forgiveness. And he desired the situation that we're in with, with our world, even with the sin of Adam and Eve, that it wasn't uh, not planned that he might demonstrate this. We see this in creation. Romans 8 talks about the earth is groaning, waiting for the time when it's redeemed, when it sees the redemption of the sons of glory. And it talks about at one point later in Peter that the earth is going to be destroyed. There's going to be a new heaven, a new earth. We know that these are reconciliation type terms that the earth is going to be deemed restored. As John Piper said, I don't know why all of creation is in trouble. I mean, what did the animals do? That they're in the same boat as we are, but they are. And yet it's God's nature to reconcile all things, Colossians says, including all the earth for which it's groaning for in hopeful expectation. This is an expectation that we kind of maybe kind of sort of hope it happens. This is the expectation that's on the firm plan of God and His promise. The essence of forgiveness is declared by God's own pronouncement. If you want, turn to Exodus 34. I think this is just a fascinating passage that I'd never seen this in it before. This is where Moses has asked God to show him to him. And God said, no one can do that. You're not going to be able to see my face. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. I'll put my hand on you. And so that's the way it went. And as God does that and he reveals his glory, 
Look at what he says starting in verse 6. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. That is not what I would have expected in that instance. It seems almost as if Moses would have said, God, show me yourself. God puts him in the cleft of the rock, puts his hand over, and as he goes by, he says, I am the Lord, the Lord God, the omniscient God who knows all things from beginning to end. I am the omnipotent God, all power from galaxy to end to galaxy end. All things are under my dominion. I do all things well. It seems like that would have been at least what I would have thought he would say. But how great, how amazing for us, for his glory, that what he says is, I'm the Lord God, exercising compassion and forgiveness. This is part of God's very nature. We also know it's declared in the New Testament. 2 Timothy 1.19 says, He saved us according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. The Garden of Eden was no mistake. Adam and Eve were no mistake. Acts 2.23 says, This man Jesus was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Reconciliation, the essence of forgiveness, is rooted in God's very nature. James Buchanan says it was God's eternal purpose to overrule the fall of man for his own glory by a single manifestation of his moral perfections in justifying the ungodly through Christ as mediator. Praise God that he's done this in such a way and he's brought this into his, into his fold. Because the second point, reconciliation, the essence of forgiveness, is manifested in Christ's sacrifice. Look back at our passage in Colossians Verse 13 and 14, and then 22, says that in whom, referring to Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In case we didn't think he had the authority of the power, this is deity. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in him all things were created. Jumping down to verse 22, and yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. He's reconciled us in his fleshly body, which was a big deal to the Colossians because there was some talk that nothing fleshly could be good. It wasn't spiritual, but we know in a number of cases, Jesus paid the penalty in his body on the cross for payment for sin. Redemption, the root, root word for redemption means to, to open up and to let loose. And it would have been enough, it seems, if he just redeemed us and let us loose and said, you know what, I'm not going to cause you to pay the penalty for sin. You're not going to have to pay the price. I'm just going to let you go. I'm going to let you off. It seems like that would have been okay, but he's more than that because redemption has the, the sense of relationship, of reconciliation Ephesians 2 says it's the same root word that he broke down the wall between us, the barrier that was between us. Remember when the temple veil was torn in two, symbolically opening up a path to God, that that was opening up, establishing the relationship. 
In 2 Peter, when it says that the earth is going to be destroyed with a fervent heat, it's interesting. The word destroyed is the same root word to let it loose and that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. It's a reconciliation even of the planet. God has this strange delight in taking things that are broken and fixing them and making them better. When He renews the earth, it's not new in the sense of something by time is new. It's new, the word kainos, in the sense of something with quality and substance. In that way, it's new. And so we're being renewed in the spirit of our mind. He abolished in His flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in Himself He might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. The essence of forgiveness is manifested in Christ's sacrifice. Anselm of Canterbury, the Archbishop of England in 1093, said that man alone owed the debt, and because of that, man alone must pay the debt. But man was not able. God alone could pay the debt. Therefore, the mediator, the Savior, the Messiah, the sin-bearer had to be God and man, Jesus Christ Martin Luther expressed it this way. He said, All of us were born in sin as God's enemies. We've earned nothing but eternal wrath and hell so that everything we are and can do is damned. And there is no way of help or way out of the predicament. Therefore, another man had to step into our place, namely Jesus Christ, God and man, and had to render satisfaction and make payment for sin through his suffering and death. Ephesians 1.18 describes this as God having lavished His love upon us in this redemptive process. And I love in our verses, it says that He has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He has transferred us into the kingdom of His dear Son. These are all relationship-type words. To qualify means to attain a standing. You have a qualifying race where you go to the next level. God has qualified us made us able, made it right, made it proper that we should share in the inheritance. You don't get an inheritance unless you're either family or loved, or both in this case. We've been delivered. We're protected. We're guarded. We've been transferred. We have a change of living area. We have a change of venue. We've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son. Interesting that all those are past tense words. We've been qualified. We've been delivered. We've been transferred. I just praise God that that's what it means to have His love lavished upon us. Thirdly, the essence of forgiveness, which is reconciliation, is demonstrated by our behavior. And now we get to the the, the meddling, the rubber meets the road part. Because for us to fully recognize what we've been forgiven, the natural outflow is forgiveness. C.S. Lewis said that we've been forgiven an incalculable sum, and therefore we must be able to forgive in the same manner. I think of Joseph as far as having a proper view of God, which, by the way, having a high view of God and having a high view of Scripture are mutually exclusive. We cannot have a high view of God, a proper high view of God, unless we have a high view of Scripture. 
And in the same way, neither can we have a high view of Scripture if we don't have a high view of God. Joseph had both and is a great example for us. Here's someone 17 years old, hated by his brothers, doubted by his father, having to travel on the road with Midianites to Egypt, gets there, sold into slavery, wrongly accused by Potiphar's wife, unjustly imprisoned by Potiphar himself. And then he goes to prison, and we think he's, things are getting a little better when he tells the uh, dreams to the cupbearer and the baker. And then I think, come on, cupbearer, how do you forget the guy who, who uh, interpreted your dream? But he does, and so he's in prison longer. And then finally he gets out, interprets Pharaoh's dream, and then is married to an Egyptian woman. Now, we think all his problems are over. You know, this may not be the greatest thing in the planet. She's, it's a cross-cultural relationship. He has kids that don't shape up to be all that great. This may not be the easiest thing either. If there's anyone who had opportunity to allow things to fester and to harbor resentment and a grudge for 13 years, Joseph is a prime candidate. I don't know if any of you have been through anything that bad, but we can learn from Joseph when his brothers came for the second time and they were worried, they knew what had happened, and he said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That just didn't happen when he saw his brothers. That's been a mode of Joseph's life all through this time. It said that God was with Joseph, and he must have been maintaining a high view of God and how God communicated with him, we don't know. But Joseph maintained a high view of God and retained the words he had heard from him, even maybe his early dream, and recounted it properly that you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. It's fascinating that there was no worry in Joseph's part about the free will of man or the sovereignty of God. He just says, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. He didn't didn't, uh, go any further in the discussion past that. Sometimes things bad happen in our life. We think, yeah, but if I hadn't only have done this, or I wish I had done that, or if they hadn't done this, or if this hadn't happened that way, Joseph says, it doesn't matter. Someone else might have even meant it for evil, and God does all things well. All things work together for good. God meant it for good. Joseph is another great example. I'm sorry, David is another great example where told that he's going to be the king of Israel and then chased around the mountain a couple of times by Saul and talk about don't throw things in the house. Saul is hurling his spear at David, trying to pin him to the wall. And on a couple of occasions, David has opportunity to kill Saul. He had already been told he would be the next king of Israel. It seemed like a logical, especially in that time frame, to just go ahead and kill Saul off and then take possession of the throne. But because David had a high view of God and a high view of God's word, he trusted God that he would be king of Israel and he was not going to stretch out his hand against God's anointed, even though he had pressure from his men to do exactly that. In fact, he could have taken a pass. They were going to do it. They were happy to do it. No, I'm not going to stretch my hand against God's anointed. I have completely forgiven Saul for everything he's done. In fact, he shows kindness to the house of Saul in later years. Stephen also, in the New Testament, literally in the process of being murdered, has a high view of God as he sees him physically in person, standing at the right hand of God, and forgives his murderers. When we understand the extent of our forgiveness, when we recognize that our sin 
ultimately ends up being infinite sin requiring an infinite penalty because we've offended an infinite God. It makes our forgiveness powerfully strong. To the point where Peter, to the, his, the church he was writing to, said, Brothers, I want you to add to your faith all diligence. Add to your faith all these Christian character qualities such as self-control, using diligence, add kindness, brotherly love, perseverance, all these things. And he goes down this list and he gets near the bottom. He says, but if you are lacking any of these things, you are blind or short-sighted because you've forgotten that you are purified from your sin. That's what happens when we forget when we don't think about the forgiveness that we have in Christ, we lack qualities that are critical to honoring the Lord and pleasing Him. The New Testament talks about bearing sin for one another. As I mentioned, that language goes from conditional, us forgiving, therefore the Father will forgive us, to because you have been forgiven in Christ, therefore forgive one another. Is Christ's blood sufficient? Is there someone in your life that you're still making pay for sin that they've committed? If we're making them pay, then what we're saying is that Christ's blood was not sufficient to cover that sin. I have to harbor it also, and I have to make them pay for it as well. Conversely, if we say we're going to make someone pay and we're harboring, holding on to a grudge holding on to a relationship that's damaged, harboring things in our heart, we're maybe saying that the wrath of God is not sufficient to take care of that sin, but we also have to bear some of the wrath and anger as well. What does it mean to bear sin? In Jay Adams' book, he does a good job of clarifying some of this. To bear one another's sin means, I will not bring this matter up to you again. I will not bring this matter up to anyone else. I will not dwell on this matter anymore. And we're tempted to say, you're asking me to forgive and forget. I can't do that. I'm a human being. I have recollection. I recall. I remember. We know that God himself said, your sins and iniquities, I will remember no more, right? Do you think God somehow lost consciousness about those sins? No. He's willingly chosen to set them aside, and he has not brought them up to us. He's not going to bring them up to someone else, and he's not dwelling on them. It's been said that there's that forgiveness needs to be conditional. And uh, it was interesting reading a number of people who said that you can't, nor should you forgive, unless that person comes to you and asks for forgiveness first. And while in some sense it is conditional, there was a penalty payment required for God to extend forgiveness to us. That's true, but because of that, we can forgive willingly, completely, wrongs that are done us. I don't think we can forgive things that someone else has done. I don't think I can forgive someone who has killed someone else's son, I have no business forgiving that. That's not my right to forgive. 
But I don't find the issue of conditional forgiveness anywhere in Scripture that can be backed up. If anything, we see the likes of David and Joseph and Stephen and Jesus from the cross willingly, with an attitude of forgiveness, extending that, making it available. The fourth thing, reconciliation. The essence of forgiveness is central to our ministry. Look at Colossians uh, uh, 1, there are passage, verses 7 through 9. It says, you learn this from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of, our, of your love in the Spirit. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. We know that we've been granted the ministry of reconciliation, that as though God were in us, we are ambassadors seeking people to be reconciled to him. The goal is to have restored harmony with God. We learn this from one another. We learn it from Epaphras, the Epaphras is in our life. We learn it because we're praying for one another. We're engaging with one another. And by that, we learn to walk worthy, filled with the knowledge of his will. It's interesting that the word here, knowledge, the Gnostics, gnosko was the word for knowledge, and the Greeks, some of the agnostic groups were saying, you have to have this special knowledge. That's the way that you become a Christian. That's the way that you have the spiritual life. And it's interesting when he's praying for them, he says, I want you to be filled with the knowledge of God, increasing in the knowledge of God. He uses the stronger version of that word, epigonosco, meaning experiential knowledge, relationship. Paul is saying we have this relationship that's born out in our life. We're seeking to learn to please him, Ephesians 4 tells us, understanding what the will of the Lord is, seeking to please him, and that we bear fruit. You remember the story when Jesus was talking to the Pharisee and the woman had washed his feet and the Pharisee was, uh, was annoyed and he asked Simon, I believe his name was, the question about who forgives more, who loves more, he who's forgiven little or forgiven much. And he rightly answered, he who has forgiven much. Well, we've all been forgiven much. It's just the recollection and the the recognition of that and the realization of that that allows us then to bear, bear fruit. And lastly, reconciliation, the essence of forgiveness, culminates in God's glory in verse 18 of our Colossians passage. Eighteen to twenty, he is also head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross through him, whether things on earth or in heaven. He's ultimately going to reconcile all things to his glory. He's going to have first place in everything. Look at Revelation 22. This is the culmination of all things pertaining to humanity as we experience it now. There's a little more that John and Jesus are talking about at the tail end of Revelation 22. But look at the first few verses. Does this not sound like the complete renewal, the reconciliation, the redemption, the making right of all things that had started at the Garden of Eden? 
Verse 1, And he showed me a river of water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb, and in the middle of its street. And on the other side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his bondservant shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. And there shall no longer be any night and they shall not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them, and they shall reign forever and ever. Amen. This is the reconciliation, the redemption of all things. I started the message with a story. I want to end with a story on forgiveness. Corey ten Boom was also held in a Nazi concentration camp. Her and her sister uh, were in the same, were in Raven, Ravensbrück, and she was given a message in a church in Munich, Germany, on forgiveness. She had struggled with forgiveness. Other people had been struggling with forgiveness. And so she was given a message at this church in Munich. And as she's finishing up her message, all of a sudden she sees coming toward her a large man in a brown cap with his hand extended. She immediately recognized him as one of the guards at Ravensbrück. And she froze. She said, my blood froze. He came to me and he said, Fraulein, you mentioned Ravensbrook in your, mes- in your message, and I was a guard at Ravensbrook, but I've since become a Christian. It is great to hear you say that all our sins are cast at the bottom of the sea. I've come to ask for your forgiveness for the things I've done. She recognized him, thought of the, the horrid things she'd seen, the bodies, the filth, the lack of care, the concern, marching past him, her and her sister naked, her sister eventually dying. She said, I can't, I can't forgive this man. And he stood there with his arm out. Finally, she says, I stood there with this coldness clutching my heart, but forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me. She woodenly, mechanically lifted her hand, put it into the man's hand. She said, immediately, a current coursed through me, and I've never felt God's love so powerful since. I love you, my brother, with all my heart, she cried. And so I want to ask the questions again, is there anyone that you're holding something against that you need to make right, that you need to reconcile? Anyone that you need to ask forgiveness of? If you need to take the initiative, maybe someone is holding something against you. Biblically speaking, when we recognize that, it's still our responsibility to go to them and make it right. We are ambassadors. We have been granted the ministry of reconciliation. Let's pray. Lord God, you're so good to have, from eternity past, devised a way to both demonstrate your glory, your forgiveness, your compassion, and bring us into relationship with yourself. We thank you for that. Pray that we would walk in a manner worthy of the calling by your grace, by your spirit, that we would be pleasing to you. And we thank you for this all in Jesus' name. Amen.